You know, if there's one day in history that I could have chose to live that I'm not in, uh, it would have been Palm Sunday. Uh, the thought of Christ riding in Jerusalem is sort of a, one of the highlights for me in all the scriptures. Let's pray again for just a second before we get into the scriptures. Uh, Father, I ask that you'd honor yourself this morning as we look at your word. And Lord, I pray that as we contemplate Christ and his reality, you would be pleased to lift him up in our midst. Lord, to reveal more of him to our souls, to give us the kind of enlightenment, Lord, that leads us to you and to truth and to life. Lord, we know that eternal life, that which is qualitative life, is to be in a vital personal relationship with you. It's to know you through your Son. Father, honor yourself and exalt your Son in our presence here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It is Palm Sunday, and I confess I'll only touch on Palm Sunday as tangents. We'll, we'll still be in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 this morning. By way of introduction, though, let me relate something about an educational model or maybe an incentive towards an educational uh, model. A couple millennia ago, 2,400 years or so ago, uh, there was a guy named Socrates, and he was known sort as a particular kind of educator. He didn't write anything down, but he had lots of conversations. And one of his students, Plato, wrote down one of those conversations. And this conversation, Socrates was talking about the need for educational enlightenment. And so this story he told was about our perception of life and reality and the need to gain an enlightenment that would show us the way life really is. And for Socrates and for the guys in his camp in his day, this was so that uh, citizens of Greece would be sort of their best version and that philosophers that came under his tutelage or those who followed him like Plato, they would grow up and they would serve the Greek city-states by being the best kind of administrators and politicians, at least for a season. And so they had a goal in mind, and it required education to sort of move people from one sphere to another. And this was the story he told. If, if you've heard any of these uh, conversations from Socrates, this may be the one you've heard. Socrates said it's like this. Imagine, if you will, that there's a cave. And in the cave, down in the deep recesses of the cave, there are men who've been living there since their youth, since they were born. And they are so constrained or chained or confined that all they can do is look in front of them at the wall of the cave. So it's a dark cave. They're chained up down in the bottom, and there's a wall in front of them. As you proceed back up the cave, back towards the mouth, there's a fire. And in front of the fire, there's a walkway of sorts. And people go back and forth across this walkway between the fire and the men. And as they do, some of them have conversations. So to the people in the bottom of the cave, looking forward at the wall... All they can see are the shadows cast by the people walking across that walkway, cast by the light of the fire, and all they hear are voices that appear to be coming from these shadowy figures on the wall that we know would, were just echoes. So as they look at the wall in front of them, Socrates says, as far as those guys are concerned, reality are the shadows and the echoes that they can see and hear bounced off the back of this cave wall. 
But the truth was, if one of those guys could escape, he would go up that cave and he would see a fire. And he would see these forms like statues that people were carrying back and forth. And the light would start to dawn for him that what I thought was real isn't real. That I was seeing shadows and I was hearing echoes and now I see where those shadows and those echoes came from. And what I thought was life, all I could see and all I could hear in the bottom of that cave, it wasn't real, it was shadows. It was shadows of life, it was echoes. And if he could go even further and get outside, he'd be blinded by the light of the sun. It'd be overwhelming. He couldn't even look at it initially. Rather, he'd look down and around until eventually his eyes would be accustomed to the light and he'd see life as it really was. And for Socrates, this was the pointed need for people in Greece to become good citizens by by being enlightened. And he calls this the, the highest good. And for the Greeks in his day, this wasn't the highest good as we understand it. A, a vital relationship with the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But this was being a great citizen in a great place, you know, Greece in their day. Now, whether the folks in Corinth were thinking about this or not, I'm not sure. But you know, the, the people Paul addressed in Second Corinthians, they were the heirs of the Greek philosophers. And I suspect when Paul is talking about some of the things we'll see here this morning, lights and darkness and shadow and the things we think are real and the things that are really light and truth i think this would have been hitting a theme that they had heard as they'd grown up paul tackles it primarily from a jewish perspective as we'll see here in just a minute but for them this probably rang some bells about this story one of their own philosophers had talked about what's my perception of reality is that true and what does it mean to get into the light What does it mean to come to a full-orbed appreciation or understanding of life as it really is? Before we get into 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, a few questions. Why is it that we tend to love life in the shadows and in the echoes and in the back of the cave? Because we do, and Paul talks about this. Why is it that we love and we want to hold on to life in the cave? instead of moving up to the light why is it that when people talk about christ when you and i talk about christ to friends and family why is it oftentimes it's like we're trying to turn on a light and somebody at the same time is trying to turn off that same switch why do we love the darkness and in the context of the first half of second corinthians 3 paul was singing the glories of the new covenant that jesus had instituted and so I think the Corinthians are probably asking and Paul's answering whether it's, whether it's said out loud or not, why isn't everybody believing this new covenant, Paul? Why isn't everybody buying into your version of what Jesus did for us? Why is there opposition to this, both in Judaism and in the Gentiles, if this new covenant's so good? Why doesn't everybody believe it? And related to Palm Sunday, how is it, how in the world is it, that Jesus could ride into the Hosannas on Palm Sunday sort of looks like he's embraced for who he claims to be, but then he's crucified within the week. How is that possible? How could they go from saying, we see him, Hosanna, save now, Lord, you're the Messiah, we get it, and then crucify him, crucify him. How do you get light and darkness so close together there? Paul addresses these questions in 2 Corinthians. So if you have a study sheet, the text is on there. This is New American Standard. 
If you have your own Bible, you're certainly free to read along there as well. By the way, too, like so much in 2 Corinthians, there's lots of issues here. We're only going to talk about one pointed issue in this text. We're going to cover some of the other stuff in some weeks coming up, but we'll intentionally avoid some of the key topics here this morning. So Paul continues, uh, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 3, Therefore, having such a hope, that is the hope of the new covenant, we use great boldness in our speech. We are not like Moses, pointing back to the human author of the old covenant, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. This has an Old Testament context that we'll develop here in just a minute. But back then, Paul says, their minds were hardened. And until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all that is, those who have trusted Christ, those who are living under this new covenant, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Chapter 4, Therefore, since we have this ministry, this new covenant ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. We've renounced the things hidden because of shame. We're not walking craftiness. We're not adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, why didn't the Jewish nation recognize Emmanuel past at least Palm Sunday? When they rejoiced with Palm Sunday, why didn't that last? Why didn't they really get it and embrace who Jesus was? Paul says here, it is because their minds were hardened and they were veiled to the truth of Jesus' identity. Their minds were hardened, veiled to the truth. He says this repeatedly. Verse 14, their minds were hardened. It's still going on today, he says. And the context for this is Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35 specifically. If the Jews among this group would have understood this, we've got to develop it a little bit. The story is that during the Exodus, when Moses would go up onto the mountain, and later when he'd go out into what was called the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, before the Jews lived in Jerusalem and had a temple, they had a tent. And when Moses would go up and he would meet with God personally, one, one text in Exodus, I think it's 33, says face to face. And it doesn't mean face to face because then chapter 34 says, no, Moses, you can't see my face and live. No one can see my face. But it meant person to person. It meant Moses and God as face to face as Moses could get with the infinite creator of the universe. 
So person to person, Moses is meeting with God. And as he does, the glory of God's presence. You know, as you read the Bible, the Old Testament, people talk about the Shekinah glory. There was a glory, a cloud of of this glowing presence of God in the temple. Well, I assume it was something like that for Moses. And the glory of God's presence radiated, as it were, onto Moses' face. So when Moses came down from this person-to-person meeting with God, his face was glowing with the reflected glory of God. Now, when the Jews saw this, initially they were frightened. You can, ima- <laughs> you can imagine. Frightened. What's wrong? What has happened to this guy? What is going on? And if you just read that in the Exodus account, it sounds like Moses then takes a veil and he puts it over his face. In the Exodus account, it sounds like that's to keep them from being frightened. But Paul here in 2 Corinthians says that's not the case. Moses took a veil and he covered his face. When he realizes, I'm glowing, people can see this, Paul says he put a veil over his face because the glory on his face was actually fading over time. So when he's with God in God's presence, God's glory is radiated into his face. The longer he stays away from God, that glory fades. And Paul says... Moses didn't want the Jews to see that the glory of the covenant that was just being instituted with God was in fact a fading glory. So he covered his face so they couldn't see the glory fading away. Now this is the point and this is the reason Paul references this. When Moses is with God, person to person, there's no veil on his face and he sees God as he is. He sees God. If Moses has a veil over his face, the Jews cannot see the glory of God because the glory of God for the Jews is is the glory coming from Moses' face. So for Paul, the picture is this. If there's no veil in, in place, you can see God's glory clearly. If there's a veil in place, you cannot see God and God's glory And the analogy changes just a little bit here because the veil or the sense or the image of the veil goes from on Moses' face to over their eyes. But the thought is the same. If there's a veil in place, they can't see God clearly. And that's what Paul says is going on with those who are rejecting the new covenant offer God has made in Christ. Their minds are hardened as if a veil still lies over their face and they can't see past that veil to the glory of God. That's the Old Testament sense. Veil is used in this extended portion in chapter 3 and 4 seven times. Paul wants to know there's a veil in place. You sort of see this same theme later, earlier in the Synoptic Gospels. When it says the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom at Jesus' death, all of a sudden we get the same implication that God who used to be remote, you couldn't come into his presence, you couldn't see him. If the veil of the temple is torn, that means God is no longer set off by himself. That means the way to God is open. It was something like that. If the veil's in place, you can't see God. If the veil's removed, we can see him. Now, Paul says in verse 15, to this very day, 
when the Jews were reading and trying to come, come to terms and comprehend God through the Old Covenant, he said it's as if that veil that Moses had is still there and they can't see the truth. Now, <clears throat> those Jews were very religious people. You know, in Jesus' day, they went to synagogue, they went to the temple, they gave, they fasted, they went to church like us. They were good religious people, right? They were moral people. They were jumping through religious hoops, and Paul says they didn't know God and they didn't see him. And the Jewish nation didn't embrace Jesus past Palm Sunday because they didn't see who he was, as religious as they were. They were still looking through the lens of the old covenant, and God had changed the plans. And it's a new day, and it's a new covenant in Christ, and to have Christ is to have life, and it's to be in that covenant relationship with God. Many people today, I think, are no different than that, uh, going through the same kind of religious uh, formulas, if you will, but still not seeing the glory of Christ. So the question arises, okay, well then, how do you get rid of the veil? If they don't see God and Christ's glory because of the veil, how do you get rid of the veil? And here in verse 16, Paul says, well, this is what you do. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. This is not hard work. This isn't scaling mountains. This isn't diving to the depths of the deepest sea. What removes the veil? Paul says, all you got to do is turn around. Just turn around. If you're those guys in the cave, if you were free to turn around, you, you know there's light behind you, you see the shadows, all you have to do is turn around physically and you'd see there's more than the shadows on the wall of the cave. There's a fire. If you went a little further, you'd see, and there's a sun. All you have to do, Paul says, is turn around. This, if you read the synoptic gospels and the the appeals to repent, to think differently, to think again. It's that same thought. All you're doing is you're turning from the place you're already facing, the darkened wall of the cave, and you're turning around towards the source of the light. Paul says when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And they see God and they see Christ and they see his glory. They see life as it really is. It's not based on a bunch of work. It's not religious practices. All they're doing is turning around to look. And when they look, they see the truth and they see God in his glory as he is. You see this in a couple of verses in the New Testament. In Acts 9.35, Peter had healed a guy who was lame and the people see this guy and it says, all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, the paralyzed man, and they turned to the Lord. It's the same thought. They turned from the direction they were facing. They turned around to look at Christ because of the miracle. And a great verse, one of my favorites along this theme out of 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul says to another Greek city, Thessalonica, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. All they did was they turned around. And when they turned, they saw the veil was removed by simply turning around. Listen to what Socrates said about the guys in the cave. He said, it is as if it were not possible to turn the eye from darkness to light without turning the whole body. So one must turn one's whole soul from the world of becoming 
until it can endure to contemplate reality and the brightest of realities which we say is the good. In Paul's context, this would be the reality of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ. Socrates said they would have to turn around to see the light. And that's all Paul is saying here. That when a person turns to Christ with the eyes of faith, the veil is removed and they see Christ as he is and they get it. Now, if you go into chapter 4, you've got a a variation on this same theme. In chapter 3, Paul says the reason people haven't trusted Christ and come into this new covenant is because there's a veil, a spiritual veil that's over their eyes, their minds are hardened, they don't see. In chapter 4, Paul says there's a blindness that's at work. And the blindness is something that's produced not necessarily from inside a person, but from an outside force. So in chapter 4, at verse 3 and 4, Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So here Paul says the reason they don't get it is not only is there a veil in front of our face, but the God of this world, Satan the devil, is actively at work to keep people from seeing the truth. And Satan has this blinding effect on our eyesight, on our spiritual eyesight, our ability to see things as they really are. This could be for all kinds of reasons, guys. I mean, if you think, how does, how does the enemy keep me or keep you or keep others from seeing things as they are? I'm just thinking of things as simple as entertainment. You know, we're a culture that's entertained to death. If turning to Christ removes the veil and the blindness ends, if you just keep a person preoccupied with anything else, it doesn't matter what it is, they don't turn around. And we are a culture that's entertained to death. So, you know, we grow up with entertainment. We've got kitty sports for everything under the sun. We've got video games, computer games, you name it. And, you know, a lot of people, they're busy going along in life. They don't have any thought of anything higher than I'm living for the weekend. I'm, I'm working at my job so I can get money to go do the things I enjoy. I'm entertaining myself to death. You know, for a lot of us, uh, we're in a very materialistic culture. <clears throat> we simply pursue other things. We pursue careers. We pursue money, wealth, fame, whatever success looks like to us. But it has the effect of keeping us blind to the truth that we are, in fact, Paul says, perishing and that God has a way out for us. You know, another thing, uh, the world is a very religious place. And you know, the God of this world, he's as comfortable in church on Sunday as he is the bars or the brothels or you name it. You know, Satan goes to church every Sunday, all over the country, all over the world. And whether you're thinking of what Christians would call false religions, religions that don't see a a significant creator God and his son Jesus as his representative on the earth, or even if they do, if they just say, well, he really didn't rise from the dead or he really wasn't virgin born or he really wasn't this or he really wasn't that. As long as it's not about Christ, it's okay. Satan's very religious. Uh, This is not a problem. 
uh, you know, Christian denominations. Satan's comfortable in those too. So Satan goes to church, and it doesn't matter what it is, as long as our eyes are kept from Christ himself, he's winning the day. And that blindness that he's after against us is working. Doesn't matter what it is. It can be anything. It can be everything. So, if we've got hardened, veiled minds, Paul says, well, just turn around and you'll see the truth. But what if we're blind? How do we get rid of this problem? How can we see? How can a blind man see? Or how can the man in Socrates' cave, how can they see if there's no sunlight or if the fire goes out? How can a blind man see? Well, Paul says here in verse 6, The God who said light will shine out of darkness, he is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is another Old Testament reference. So this is the creation account. So Genesis 1, 1 through 3. You know when God speaks the world into existence in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, do you remember the initial state of the world? It's dark. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface or the face of the deep. So there's this initial, initial creation, but there's no light. And so in verse 3, the first thing, once the created order is in place, God says, let there be light. And all of a sudden, light springs, and if you will, overcomes the darkness of that initial creation. God speaks, let there be light, and there's light. And Paul says that when Christ is proclaimed in the gospel, God is again saying into a dark existence, into the dark cave world of our souls, God is saying again, let there be light. When you and I share the truth of Christ with others, God is saying, let there be light. When the gospels proclaim that God the Son came to the earth as a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the grave, when you and I share that simple message, God is in fact saying, let there be light. And the proclamation of who Jesus is and what he did, that is the light that overcomes the darkness. Now, it's certainly true, and Paul points out, some are perishing. You know, I can turn a light on, but I can't make anyone open their eyes. But the light is there. And when you and I, like Paul, share the gospel, God is in effect saying, let there be light, and blindness is overcome by the light of the knowledge of Christ. When you and I share the gospel with other people, you are in fact confronting the gates of hell because this is spiritual warfare. And Satan has a hold of people's minds and souls and the way they see and the way they don't see. And when you share the truth of Christ, you're confronting the kingdom of darkness. And when you do, you better be praying. Christians, sometimes we play at this, but you can find out that there's real spiritual opposition and real spiritual battle when you start speaking out for Christ and pointing out Christ to others. 
you'll know. If, if you didn't know before, you'll know there's a real enemy and he really doesn't like me and he really doesn't like Christ and he doesn't want Christ made known. When Christians, when those living in the new covenant proclaim Christ to others, you are in effect confronting the kingdom of darkness and God is using that transmission of the message of Christ to say to those living in that dark cave, let there be light. Blindness is overcome by the light proclaimed in Christ. When Jesus started his ministry in Luke 4, 18, he was quoting from Isaiah so that everybody up there in Galilee knew he's claiming to be the Messiah. They didn't all believe it, of course, but he made a very clear claim. But this is what he said in reference to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel, that is the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, Jesus does heal blind men who have physical blindness and they get sight. But he's principally talking about spiritual blindness. And Jesus says his role was to bring sight to those who had been blind, just like those guys in Socrates' cave. And in John 9, 39, if you remember, Jesus had healed a guy born blind, and there's a, there's a big uproar, and, and the religious leaders want to know how this happened and what went on. And Jesus says there, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, those who are blind may see, and that those who may see, those who see, excuse me, may become blind. The religious leaders say, no, we see it. We see life as it is. They're looking at shadows on the wall, and they say, we see really. And Jesus says, well, you'll be consigned to your blindness. But those who are blind, they're going to see. So it's ultimately God, just like he was in the creation account in Genesis 1. This is thrilling, isn't it? You know, if I read Genesis 1 and God says, let there be light, that's powerful. That's the universe. But do you know when you as a Christian share Christ with others, it's as if God is saying it over and over and over again. And you're part of that process. So Paul says God is shining the light, but you and I get to participate in turning the light on just by sharing our testimony with others, just by telling others what Christ has done and who he is. Listen to what Socrates said again here. He said, if someone were to drag one of those guys down in the cave, get a hold of him, unlock him, unshackle him, and drag him by force up the rough and steep path and didn't let him go before he was dragged into the sunlight, at last he would be able to see the sun. Not images of it in water or in some alien place, but the sun in itself, in its own place, and able to contemplate it. God is about taking the light down to people like us, living life in a dark hole, in a cave. And he's leading us out of that dark cave up into the light of day and reality and ultimate life. Last verse here, Acts 26, 18, combines both of these thoughts when Paul is in uh, Jerusalem and he's been arrested and he gives a defense later to King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus, he relays his story of conversion on the Damascus Road. And he tells them what Jesus said to him at that moment of blinding light reality for Paul. 
Paul got such a dose of Christ's personal glory that it blinded him for a time. But afterwards, he saw things as they really were. But this is what Jesus told Paul. Excuse me. He said, Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, to those guys that are really lost in the cave with Socrates. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. So when Jesus commissions Paul, he says, you're going to the Gentiles, you're going to those guys in Corinth and Thessalonica in Greece, and you're going so that their eyes will be opened as they turn from darkness to the light. It's exactly the same imagery. Exactly the same imagery. Listen to this last thing Socrates said about this cave. Uh, Socrates was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. But if Socrates could be prophetic, he was. So listen to what he said. What happens? What happens if someone from the world of the light goes down to tell those people who live in shadows that there's a whole other world, there's a whole other existence, you don't have to live down here. What would happen to such a person? Socrates tells it this way, if he had to contend again with those who had remained prisoners, the guy got up, he got up into the world of light, not shadow. He sees the sun and the sky and the clouds and the grass and the water and he knows what they used to think was reality in life is a cave with echoes and with shadows. Would he not, as he goes back to tell those folks in the cave, be ridiculed? Would it not be said that he'd return from his upward journey with his eyesight spoiled and that it was not worthwhile even to attempt to travel upward? They'd say, man, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. We've got reality right here, these shadows and these echoes. As for the man who tried to free them, and lead them upward. If they could somehow lay their hands on him and kill him, they would do so. And Glaucon, the individual he's speaking to, says, they certainly would. And they did. Right? So God the Son, the light of the world, comes from heaven to earth. He tells Jews and Gentiles alike that, guys, life is not life in the cave that you think is reality. There's this whole different world out there. And I'm here to tell you about it. And Jews and Gentiles, not just the Jews, Jews and Gentiles say, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And we collectively killed him. And of course, in God's sovereignty, the sovereign plans of God, talked about in Acts 2, God uses that murder of his son as this satisfactory sacrifice for your sins and mine, for the sins of the folks that killed him, for you and I that live life in the cave. Jesus' death on the cross for our sins covers our sins, satisfies God's wrath. He rises from the dead and we are declared just. But a man did come back from the light of reality and he did tell the world, there's a different way. You're living life in a cave. And we killed him and God used that very death to say, let there be light. And there's light in the world today. God is inviting us to a world of substance and not shadows, a world of light 
not darkness, a world of person-to-person fellowship, not echoes. That's the life that God's calling us into today. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Guys, every one of us, we are born in darkness and sin. We can't help it. That's what we are. And then by omission and by commission, then we we put sin upon sin and we are condemned by a holy and righteous God. There's no way around from from that. that. That is our condition. And short of Jesus, we are, with the people Paul's talking about, we are perishing. This is ultimate reality. We're perishing. There's a popular book that's just come out by a well-known guy that teaches some version of universalism. And you know the truth is, lots of Christians would like to believe in universalism too. It's all good in the end. Love wins. That means nobody perishes. You just can't get there from the Scriptures though, can you? And the one who died for our sins is the one that says there's a place separated from God forever where those who reject His light go. You cannot get away from that. Ask yourself this morning, if you're not sure, are you still living in a a life of shadows? Are you still living in a cave in darkness? Because in the proclamation of Christ, all we do is turn around to Christ and the veil is lifted and we see life as it really is and the light goes on. And for us, we few, we happy few as it were who live in this new covenant, we're commissioned just like Paul to go out and to tell others there's a new world out here and you're living life in a dark hole in the ground and what you think is reality it's shadows and it's echoes and God's calling you out to the sunshine to the light of day and to the glories of all he is and that goes on forever and ever and ever and when we share the truth the gospel Christ claims in his person. God is in effect saying into the dark worlds of the lives around us, let there be light. Let there be light. See, if you're not sure if you're still living in the cave, you simply turn to Christ with the eyes of faith, say, thank you, Father, for forgiving my sins in your son. And for those of us who know him, guys, we have a mission and we have a job. You know, if you've been saved and you don't share Christ with someone else, God help you. God help me. Life is about eternity, ultimately. The ultimate reality is not this earth, this earth that's consumed in the fires of God's judgments. Second Peter, it's consumed in fire. Nothing here stays. Only people are forever. So are we working with God to proclaim the light of the glory of God in Christ to others? Because that's what we're called to. That's all that will matter in eternity knowing Christ and making Christ known to others. That's what we're here about. Father, thanks that you've turned the light on, that in your Son at your expense, Lord, at his life's cost, you've removed the veil, you have banished the light that the enemy of our souls tries to bring down like a curtain over our eyes. Father, we entrust ourselves to you. We thank you that you have given us new life in your Son. Lord, would you use us, would you make us conscious of the need of others for the light to be turned on? 
Lord, would you keep us from any kind of reticence or shame or embarrassment by which we would fail to make the glories of your Son known to others. And Lord, just as someone spoke the light of Christ into our dark souls, Lord, would you use us to do the same thing in the lives of others? Would you honor yourself? Would you magnify your Son through our proclamation of his glorious gospel? In Jesus' name, amen.